Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, hymns like that that we can sing to you, um, hymns that are honest and real about the struggles that we have. Uh, Lord, quite often we feel that pull, we feel prone to wander away from you rather than to follow Christ. And so, Lord, what we sung in that hymn, so we pray to you, Lord, that you would bind our hearts to yourself, that you would make us faithful, Lord, uh, that we would follow closely at the heels of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't be sidetracked by our, um, our own understanding, our own uh, sinful desires, Lord. Um, may you continue to renew our minds. May you continue to help us to put off the old man and to put on the new, Lord, to uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit, through your word this morning, would help us in following Christ more faithfully, we pray in his name. Amen. So as I said, we're, Lord willing, finishing uh, chapter 7 today. Um, and it's a bit of a giant leap, about 16 verses to go through. Um, so let's begin. Uh, I wanted to begin by just uh, speaking about big decisions. Big decisions can be hard to make, especially when there's no clear right or wrong answer. And the toughest decisions to make can be the ones in which either option, either path we take would seem to bring glory to God, and we're left wondering, which way do I go? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40, Paul is addressing individuals who are facing that kind of decision. And the decision they're facing is, should I marry? Or should I not? Paul will offer counsel here that guides the unmarried person through that decision-making process. Now, even if you're not single, this is not the time to take a nap because there are lessons here for all of us, things that we can glean even if we're not single from this passage that will guide us in how to make these kinds of life-changing big decisions. And so as we go through this passage, we will learn four considerations to take into account when we are making big decisions, four perspectives, four ways of looking at a decision in order to evaluate what the Lord would have us do, which, which fork in the road to take. So the first perspective that we will see is a practical perspective. We'll see that in verses 25 to 28. And regarding these uh, single believers, that practical perspective has to do with this. What, what Paul wants them to take into in consideration is this, that singleness may involve less suffering. That's a very practical consideration. Singleness may involve less suffering. So let's start. Verse 25. Paul begins that verse by saying, now concerning. We saw that phrase up in verse 1 of chapter 7, where Paul was responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written, and he indicated that he was beginning to respond to their letter by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote. Here in verse 25, we see that phrase repeated, now concerning, indicating that he's probably about to address another issue 
that they had brought up in their letter to him, an issue closely related to everything he's been talking about in chapter 7, that is, regarding marriage. In verses 25 through 40, Paul is going to largely address those who are unmarried and who are considering whether or not they should get married. So what does Paul say in verse 25? He writes, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Paul tells us here that he's received no firm command from the Lord regarding this matter. Jesus did not mandate one way or the other if a virgin, that is someone who's never been married, which is how Paul is using that word here, if a virgin should get married or not. Jesus did not mandate one way or the other. And we actually saw this already in our Lord's words in Matthew 19. If you would, flip back to Matthew 19. We've looked at this chapter before as we've been going through 1 Corinthians 7. And you'll remember there in Matthew 19 how Jesus was speaking of the binding nature of marriage. And to the disciples' ears, what Jesus was teaching was quite strict. And so they responded to his teaching in verse 10. Look at how they responded. The disciples said to him, to Jesus, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But then notice what Jesus says. Verse 11, he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. That phrase at the end there is key. The only ones who can, can accept what the disciples said are those to whom it has been given. So implying that God enables certain individuals to forego marriage. He doesn't enable everybody, only some. Jesus goes on in verse 12 to say, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. That's one way the Lord gives that gift. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men in the providence of God. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So even there, Jesus doesn't say a command one way or the other. He leaves it up to the individual believer, depending on that believer's circumstances. So the decision to get married or not get married is not a decision between right and wrong. It's a decision between good and better, depending on your circumstances, depending on how God has gifted you. And so what Jesus said in seed form in Matthew 19, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, is going to elaborate on. So back to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Paul says that here he is giving his opinion. He's giving his judgment, his counsel, his advice on this matter. And he's speaking as someone who has been made trustworthy by the Lord's mercy. And because he is a trustworthy counselor, Paul's advice here is something that the single person should weigh very heavily in determining whether or not to get married. This isn't just anyone's opinion. This is an apostle's opinion. This is someone who is being carried along by the Holy Spirit 
as he writes out this counsel. So this counsel that he is giving, though it's not a command, it's still counsel from the Lord, because Paul is still speaking as an apostle. What we saw in Matthew 19, we're going to see here, just in a more elaborated fashion. We're going to see that Paul is still in lockstep with Christ in this counsel that he's giving. This is a decision that the Lord leaves up to the believer, but it is a decision that the Lord expects us to exercise his wisdom in making. So what is Paul's counsel? What is his opinion? What's his advice? Verse 26, he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. As he's been doing throughout this entire chapter, Paul is applying the same principle that we've seen him apply throughout this whole chapter, the principle that he laid out very clearly for us in verses 17 to 24. And that principle was remain as you are. And Paul takes that principle and he applies it to this new case, those who are unmarried, virgins. Remain as you are. Consider that singleness may be the Lord's assignment for you for now. That sounds pretty open and shut. He doesn't give any exceptions there, but that's not all he has to say. As he's been doing throughout this chapter, he will give exceptions to that. And he does so in verse 28. He says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. So when he said remain as you are, it wasn't a command, it was advice, because he says if you decide to get married, you didn't sin. So he's leaving it open to the individual believer. Marriage, of course, is a part of God's good creation. It was instituted before the fall, not after. It's part of his very good creation. So it's not a sin to get married. Again, as I said before, this is not a decision between right and wrong. It's a decision between good and better. Why might singleness be better than marriage? Why might that be the case? Well, in verse 26, Paul hinted at one reason. And he points to that same reason again in verse 28. In verse 26, Paul said that remaining single is good in view of the present distress. In view of the present distress. And in verse 28, Paul said, of those who are married, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. So that, that tells us the reason, the circumstances in which singleness might be better than marriage. We cannot know for certain, but it seems that these believers were facing a set of circumstances that were a compelling reason to stay single. He says in verse 26 that the distress they were facing was present. Present it means it was an ongoing thing that they were facing at the time that Paul was writing this letter to them. The word for distress, as my version translates it, is ananke. Yours might have necessity. 
uh, or pressure or something like that. But that word, ananke, or distress, it carries the sense of necessity that is arising from circumstances. And those circumstances can be outside of you or inside of you. And here Paul has external circumstances in mind, circumstances that are coalescing in such a way that it is creating a compelling reason to decide to stay single rather than to get married. And the fact that these circumstances are distressful is indicated by the fact that Paul says he's trying to spare them tribulation, trouble. So Paul's advice here is very practical. When we're making big decisions like, do I marry or don't I marry, it's not wrong to take practicality into account in making those kinds of decisions. Paul basically says, listen, if you get married, it's going to result in more suffering and I don't want that for you. And I think we can all understand that. When times of calamity come upon us, it's a lot easier to deal with just your suffering than it is to also deal with the suffering of your family. When you have a spouse and children, your suffering dramatically increases during times of distress. Because not only are you hurting, but seeing your wife or seeing your husband hurt and seeing your children hurt, that amplifies your pain because it hurts you more to see them hurting than it hurts you to just hurt yourself. There are times, not all the time, but there are times when getting married just does not make a lot of practical sense, such as times of war or famine, or heavy persecution, circumstances like that. And that's, those are the circumstances surrounding Paul's giving of this advice to these believers. And it's important to take that into account. He's saying it's not a sin to get married during those times, but it will result in more suffering. He's counseling them from that perspective, a practical perspective. But that's not the only direction from which Paul is coming to offer this kind of counsel. And that brings us to the second perspective. The second perspective from which we should evaluate a decision, like do I marry or don't I marry, that second perspective is an eternal perspective. What decision makes the most sense in the light of eternity? And we see that in verses 29 to 31. When times of calamity come, it's a reminder to us that our hope is not found in this world. Times of calamity have a certain way of compelling us to look heavenward because it brings us, oftentimes in brutal fashion, brings us to the realization that this world offers us no lasting hope. And so it brings us to the end of our rope, as it were, and we have nowhere to look but up. We look to the Lord during times of calamity. Times of distress bring us right up to the edge of eternity so that we can see more clearly than we have ever had before. We're reminded that the time is short and the opportunity to make our lives count for Christ are fleeting. 
And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says what he says in verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. So they're in a time of distress, and Paul is saying to them, listen, the time has been shortened. And there's a number of scriptures that say something similar to this. Look with me, if you will, to Romans 13. Romans 13, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Another passage like this is Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Paul says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, or redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And then lastly, let's go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verses 7 through 9. There James says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. And listen to the reason he gives for why we can be patient during times of suffering. For the coming of the Lord is near, saying it won't be too long, so wait, he's coming soon. Verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That was 2,000 years ago. How much more close is the coming of our Lord. His hand is on the doorknob and he's turning the knob about to burst through. The time has been shortened. So we need to make good use of it. Some of us are penny pinchers, but all of us should be minute pinchers. We should be seeking to make our fleeting moments of earthly life count for Christ because we don't have many moments. This is what Paul is getting at when he says the time has been shortened, back in 1 Corinthians 7, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. 
We live in this world, and so we have to interact with this world and follow the pattern or the form of this world to some extent in order to live in it. But, Paul says, don't go thinking that this world is all there is. Don't go thinking that this world is going to last forever. This world, along with the temporal features of this world, including marriage, is passing away, Paul says. There will be no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth because our earthly marriages will be replaced by what they have been pointing to all along, which is the marriage between Christ and his church, between God and his people. Our earthly marriages will be taken up and absorbed into that great marriage between us and our Lord. Paul wants the believers who are single to keep this in mind as they decide whether or not to get married. Marriage is not forever. Life with Christ is forever. Therefore, marriage is not where our hope and our purpose is found. Christ is where our hope and our purpose is found. Because of that, in order to make the wisest decision whether to marry or not marry, one needs to make that decision based on what will count the most for Christ, because Christ is forever. And that's what Paul begins to discuss in verses 32 through 35. And that brings us to a third perspective, a third consideration in making a decision. And that third consideration is devotional. We need a devotional perspective in making decisions. We should ask ourselves, in making this decision, which option will draw me closer to Christ? Which option will bring more glory to God? Look at verse 32. Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. I want you to be free from concern. Paul here, he's not talking about wanting them to have a carefree, easy life. That's not what he means. Most of us have probably seen the movie The Lion King. And you remember when the young lion, Simba, he gets lost and he stumbles into the jungle and he comes across uh, a meerkat and a warthog, Timon and Pumbaa. And they teach him the carefree life. And they teach him a song. Do you remember what song that is? Hakuna Matata. That's right. And one of the lyrics of that song was this. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy, hakuna matata. That's not what Paul means when he says, I want you to be free from concern. Instead, he wants them to be free from the kind of concern that gets in the way of my concern about Christ and what Christ wants. That's the kind of concern he wants these believers to be free from. Paul goes on in verse 32. He says, One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married 
is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. The single person can be more single-mindedly focused on being concerned about the Lord than the married person can. The married person has his or her cares divided up between pleasing Christ and pleasing spouse. Now that sounds bad, but Paul does not intend to say that this divided interest in marriage is bad. It's simply a necessary consequence of being married. Most of us are familiar with Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, where Paul instructs husbands how to treat their wives, and he instructs wives how to interact with their husbands. And that picture of marriage is impossible for you to live out if you do not have concern for your spouse. You cannot obey Ephesians 5 if you are not concerned about your spouse. A husband is not being a good witness for Christ if he has no concern for his wife and if he does not seek to love her sacrificially and he does not pursue her sanctification. A, good, a wife is not being a good witness to the world about what it looks like to follow Jesus if she is not submitting to and respecting her husband, if she has no concern about her husband. A married person has to have concern for his or her spouse if he or she is to be obedient to Christ and his word. So Paul is not calling marriage a bad thing here. He's just saying, listen, this is the way marriage is. Before we move on, I just wanted to point out as an aside, notice in verses 32 to 34, that nowhere in this passage is Paul holding up the need to be concerned with yourself. The single life is to be consumed with concern for who? Christ. The married life is consumed with concern for who? Christ and spouse. If your singleness or your marriage is consumed with concern for yourself, then you are way outside of God's will and you need to repent and you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and get back to following after Jesus Christ. Both marriage and singleness are to be characterized by self-sacrifice. The self-sacrifice in marriage that you express to your spouse out of obedience to the Lord is a God-glorifying thing. Paul's not saying that's bad. But the married person does need to be watchful of something. If you're married, you need to be watchful that your concern for your spouse is flowing out of a concern for Christ. You need to make sure that your concern for your spouse does not take the place of your concern for Christ. That's, that's a temptation in marriage that the single person will not feel so strongly. To exalt spouse to the place of Lord. And during times of distress, which is the context in which Paul is giving these believers these instructions, the temptation to put your spouse in the place of Christ gets exacerbated during times of distress. Consider persecution. 
It's difficult for us in America to understand what it would be like to stand up for Christ with your life on the line. But imagine what it, be, what it would be like to stand up for Christ with your spouse's life on the line or your children's lives on the line. That's a much higher cost to pay. That's a much greater temptation to still choose Christ even over your spouse and your children. Now, Paul wants to be very clear here in verses 32 to 34 and heading into verse 35. If what I've said so far was all you heard Paul say about marriage, if you're single, you'd probably be under the impression that, well, I guess singleness is the only option here. But that's not the understanding Paul wants you to walk away with. So he says what he says in verse 35. He says, This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul's simply looking out for their best interest. He wants what will bring Christ's greatest glory in their lives. That's all he cares about. He's not trying to pigeonhole them into a certain marital status. After all, in verses 17 to 24, we saw that being celibate, being single, does not elevate your spiritual status over that of being married, any more than being circumcised elevates your spiritual status over being uncircumcised. We saw that that's not the case. So what is Paul after here? Why is he giving this advice that in circumstances like this, it's better to be single than married? Why is he saying this? Well, verse 35, he says, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate. To promote what is appropriate. I want you to bear with me because I'm going to throw a little bit of Greek at you. So hang on, just listen. The word translated appropriate, in other translations it's translated as seemly or comely or proper or what is in good order. That word is quite significant. Now before I tell you about that word, I want you to back up for a moment to verse 31. Verse 31. The end of that verse, Paul said, the form of this world is passing away. The form. The word form is the Greek word schema. And it's where our word scheme or schematic, like a schematic diagram derives from. That a schema is the way things are. It's the form. It's the pattern of how things are. And in verses 29 to 31, Paul was speaking of the world's schema, the way the world is, this world that is passing away. There's a certain way that things are done in this world, a general pattern of life that is followed. You grow up, you get married. When things go bad, you weep. When things go well, you rejoice. You accumulate possessions, and you get what you can out of this world. That's the general pattern that we see around us every day. In verse 31, Paul said that that pattern, that schema, that form is passing away. Now, in verse 35, Paul says he wants to promote what is appropriate for these believers. That word for appropriate is the word euskemon. 
You hear that word, scheme, in that word, that root in that word, euskemon. It's the same root as schema from verse 31. Euskemon, which we see in verse 35, is defined by one lexicon in this context as, quote, pertaining to being appropriate for display, proper, presentable, unquote. In other words, this word for appropriate means to fit the socially acceptable pattern of the way things are. Euskemon is that which fits the schema. What is appropriate is that which fits the form, the pattern of life that we are to be living. So what is Paul saying here? Is Paul concerned with believers fitting in with the form of this world? No. Why not? Because what's happening to this world? It's passing away. What pattern is Paul concerned that we be following? The pattern of the coming world. So when Paul says, I want to promote in you what's appropriate, I want to promote in you what fits the pattern, he's not talking about fitting in with this world, he's talking about fitting in with the coming world. Paul's concern in giving this advice that he's giving, his concern is that these believers be conformed to a different pattern a different schema, that of the coming world where God will dwell with his people forever. So when Paul says that he wants to promote what is appropriate, he seems to be saying that he wants as much as possible to have their lives molded by an eternal perspective. He wants them to make decisions that will further press them into that mold, including choosing singleness over marriage if the believer determines that to be the wisest decision. Paul is seeking to give these believers advice that will secure their highest level of devotion to Jesus Christ. And if being single results in more devotion to Christ than being married, Paul says it's wise to choose singleness because that's what the Christian life is all about, being devoted to Jesus Christ. Every decision we make should be about getting more of Christ, following Christ more closely. That's what he says at the end of verse 35. I say this for your benefit, to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Is that what goes through your mind when you make a big decision in life? When you face a fork in the road, whether the decision is to marry or not marry, take this job or take that job, live here or live there, when you are weighing the pros and cons, what is factoring into your decision? Do you ask yourself which decision will enable you to serve the Lord most freely, most devotedly, most effectively, most strategically? Or do you only consider questions that have to do with making use of this world, this world that is passing away. Is that all you think about? We need to be living in the dawning light of the coming age, not in the dying light of this passing age. We need to have an eternal perspective when it comes to making any decision, but especially big decisions like do I marry or do I not? 
That brings us to our fourth perspective that we need in making decisions, and that perspective is a providential perspective. Providential perspective. When we face these decisions, we need to ask, where does God have me in life right now? What gifts, what opportunities, what God-honoring desires has God given me? That's crucial in making a big decision. Again, based on what you've heard Paul say so far, you might come to the conclusion that for the single believer, the wisest choice is always to choose singleness. But that's not the case. Paul is going to show us that is not the case in verses 36 to 38. It's not always the wisest choice to choose singleness. It's not. Paul already acknowledged in verse 7 of this chapter that not every believer has the same giftedness to live in a certain marital status. And we already saw in verse 9 that perpetual singleness is not for everyone. He said there in verse 9, If they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And Paul will make this clear again in verses 36 to 38. Now, before I walk through these three verses, 36 to 38, I need to point something out. These three three verses are very difficult to interpret. And that comes to light when you start comparing Bible translations one with another. If you were to compare different uh, versions of the Bible on these three verses, you would see that some versions translate verses 36 to 38 in a way that has Paul addressing the fathers of virgin daughters, giving these fathers advice on whether or not to allow their daughters to marry. Other versions translate 36 through 38 in a way that has Paul addressing men who are engaged to women to be married. And he's giving advice to those men on whether or not to go ahead with the marriage to the woman they're engaged to. And the difference between these two dif- these translations is this. There's a number of words in these three verses that can legitimately be translated one way or the other. And the context does not give us a lot of help in deciding which one Paul means. The Corinthians knew exactly what Paul meant because he's responding to a letter they wrote him. They know what Paul is saying, but we don't have the Corinthians letter, so we don't exactly know what Paul is saying. I don't know which interpretation is correct, but I can tell you that what Paul teaches in these three verses, the principles that he teaches here equally apply to a father trying to decide whether or not to give his daughter in marriage or to a young man or woman trying to decide whether or not to go through with a marriage. The principles that we learn here apply to both situations. So at the end of the day, we don't really need to know which situation Paul is addressing because we have the principles and the principle works in either situation. So let's look at these three verses. In verse 36, Paul says, and as we go through it, I'll, I'll keep both interpretations in view. He says, But if any man thinks 
that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter or, as other translations have it, toward his betrothed, if she is past her youth or if his passions are strong, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. In this verse, we run into another word. Everybody groans, oh no. Another word that has the Greek root scheme from schema in it. It's the word unbecomingly or not behaving properly or uncomely. That word is the Greek verb askemeneo. Askemeneo. And this word means to act in a way that is not in keeping with the schema. It's to act in a way that is not in keeping with the acceptable pattern of doing things. And again, what is Paul concerned about? Is he upset if we are living in a way that does not match up with the form of this world? No. He's concerned about us living in a way that does not match up with the pattern of the coming world. That's what he's concerned about. And Paul is saying to either this father or this engaged man, listen, if you begin by your pursuit of singleness, if you begin living because of your pursuit of singleness in a way that doesn't match up with that coming age, then get married. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying something very similar to what he said back in verse 9. In verse 9, he basically said that if staying single is going to result in sin for you, then get married. And it's the same here in verse 36. If staying single or if keeping your daughter single is going to result in you or your daughter living in a way that is sinful, living in a way that is not in keeping with the pattern of the coming age, then go through with the marriage. It's not a sin to marry. Even though marriage is a temporal thing that will pass away along with this world, and even if it may result in more suffering during the present crisis, Paul is saying that it's far better to get married than for you to try to force singleness upon yourself or upon your daughter if that forced singleness is going to result in sin. Let me say it a different way. We saw in verse 35 that Paul is wanting to secure the un, he's wanting to secure the believer's undistracted devotion to Jesus Christ. Here in verse 36, Paul is acknowledging that for many believers pursuing celibacy will result in more distraction from Christ, not less. If you trying to be single is going to, instead of making you more devoted to Christ, is going to make you less devoted to Christ, then get married. Don't pursue singleness. It's better in such cases to get married. He ends verse 36 by saying, If it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. He goes on in verse 37 to say, But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, or 
to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. That word there for constraint, being under no constraint, or your version might have being under no necessity or being under no compulsion, that's also a word we've seen before. We saw it up in verse 26 where it was translated as distress, ananko, if I'm remembering that right, something like that. There, in verse 26, the circumstances, remember, were making something necessary. The circumstances outside of the believers, the external circumstances, what was going on around them, the circumstances were a compelling reason to choose singleness. Here, Paul is saying, Listen, you can choose singleness as long as there's not that necessity within you compelling you to do otherwise. Here in verse 37, Paul recognizes that however bad the external circumstances may be, what is going on inside of you or inside of your daughter may present an even more compelling reason to choose marriage. It's like a weighing of the scales. What's going on inside of you might weigh heavier than what's going on outside of you, and it's better to get married in such a a case. So here in verse 37, Paul is saying that if you don't have that compulsion to get married or to give your daughter in marriage, and if you stand firm in your heart, that is, you're firm in that conviction, and if you have authority over your own will, that is, if you have self-control in this matter, or if your daughter has self-control, and if you have willingly come to this decision, you do well not to marry. That's a lot of ifs. That's a lot of conditions in which it's better to choose singleness over marriage. And then we come to verse 38 where Paul says, So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage or he who marries his betrothed does well. So if you marry, you do well. And he who does not give her in marriage, or he who does not marry his betrothed, will do better. So marriage is good and singleness is good. But if God has gifted you with the ability to live the single life and you choose singleness, you do better. Not because singleness makes you better. It does not. But because you are able to be more single-mindedly focused on pleasing the Lord. That's why you do better in that case. But it depends on what gifting, what opportunities, what desires God has providentially seen fit to give you. That's why God's providence is a big part of making big decisions. God is in control of your life. And he may be directing you toward one decision over the other by the circumstances, the desires, the giftings that he has given you. And in this case, there's two good routes to take. But if God has given you the ability to be celibate and the opportunity to do so, that's the better route, Paul says. And that brings us lastly to final considerations. And I'm just going to give a brief explanation of verses 39 to 40 because they're pretty self-explanatory. He begins, verse 39, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. 
That's something that singles need to remember when considering getting married. Marriage is for life. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. There's no going back after you marry. It's a point of no return. And you need to understand that going into it. Divorce is not a parachute that you get to carry on to that one-way flight to marriage so that you can bail the moment things get unpleasant. That's not an option for the believer. He goes on, But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. If God sovereignly decides to end your marriage by taking a spouse in death, you're free to marry again, but you must only marry someone in the Lord, another believer. But he says, verse 40, in my opinion, or in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Paul ends this section the same way he began this section. He gives his counsel on the matter, and he reminds them that they need to take his counsel seriously because he too is speaking as one who has the Spirit of God. Too often when it comes to making these kinds of big decisions, we can think, like the Corinthians did, that we are spiritual enough, we are mature enough to make these big decisions on our own. And Paul is reminding us here to not be so arrogant as to think that we can discount faithful advice given to us for our own benefit. We always need help in making these kinds of decisions. Let's pray.